Good afternoon, all. Good afternoon. We are together for our regular and also very special Friday afternoon Shabbat class with Rabbi Akiva Zweig, Rosh Yeshiva at the Talmudic University of Florida. Today, the rabbi is going to be discussing Parshas Hazinu and the big day ahead, Yom Kippur. The topics will be that it's mostly our brains that need a change, and also that learning to be an aspirational Jew, which I think we all aspire to do. The month of Tishrei is anonymously sponsored in the merit of this learning to bless our family, our children and grandchildren with Torah learning, Izef Shiduchim, finding the right mate, Parnassah, good living, good health, Shalom Bayis, peace in our homes and Bracha blessing for all in the community and Le'ilu Nishmas for the elevation of the souls of Yitzhak ben Zusman HaKohen and also for the elevation of the soul of Rochel Basbero. This week's class is dedicated in the merit of a refor shalem, a complete healing for David ben Aliza, Eitan Shmuel ben Hanasima, David ben Leah, Dov ben Tzvi, Hirsch ben Dina, Yosef Shimon ben Sarina, Ayelet bas Talia Chaya, Hannah Miriam bas Rachel Reza, and Hatikonos b'nei Kela. I also posted a special message of appreciation to this group and, and in consideration of the extraordinary support and inspiration we have re received from Rabbi Zweig throughout the year. And may we recall this learning and may Hashem recall our learning and our desire to be together to learn for a blessing for all of us together to continue learning and to share good tidings. Without further ado, Rabbi Akiva Zweig. Amen, amen. Good amen. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, such a pleasure to be with all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sarah and Yehuda, for always leading us off and also for writing that very special message. I encourage everyone to take a look. It's on the Learn With chat. Um, whenever a person thinks introspectively and meaningfully, great things can happen. And uh, I very much appreciate Aaron Yehuda's sharing of his thoughts and message regarding these days of repentance and Yom Kippur. I would also just like to mention that Hatinokos, B'nai, Kayla are two twin boys uh, that were born early. And uh, Baruch Hashem, they seem to be doing okay. Uh, this is uh, grandchildren of Mrs. Devorah Kaufman and Moshe Michal, of Moshe Michal Kaufman in Miami Beach. And we wish them a Shlema along with everyone else. Uh, it should be a great year full of good bracha and Rafua, Yeshua, and Shalom, and Nechama for all we need. Today, as Aaron Yehuda mentioned, we are going to be discussing the concept that the main things that we need to change are our brains, meaning how we think. In addition, the concept of being an aspirational Jew. So what I would like to do to begin our shir today is to give an overview of Parashas Hazini. The bad news is that it's primarily negative. The good news is that it ends up positive. The way that Parsha Sa'azinu is broken down is we have several sentences at the beginning describing the greatness of Hashem and the Torah as being this incredible source of nourishment for the world. 
and Hashem's perfection, never doing anything improper or unjust, but obviously the opposite, and that the Jewish people themselves have unfortunately, instead of appreciating Hashem, have blamed Hashem for much good. Then the parsha talks about remembering history and the way that the world developed with the flood and with the establishment of 70 nations, and that ultimately the Jewish people emerged from all of that as a nation fortified by Hashem, established by Hashem with tremendous foundation, and that Hashem built them up in the desert, and Hashem protected them, and Hashem gives them victory over their enemies, and the way Hashem takes care of his people. From that point forward, which is about sentence 14 uh, in the Arsha, really 15, the Jewish people become fat and rebel. They leave Hashem, they denigrate and make Hashem jealous with idolatry, so to speak, forgetting Hashem. And the Sukkim relate Hashem's anger and the fact that terrible tragedies and exiles and horrible diseases and plagues come upon the Jewish people, and that really Hashem is the one giving the enemies of the Jewish people their power. As one particular sentence says, how could it be that one enemy could chase a thousand and two enemies could chase 10,000, if not for the fact that it's God that's really giving over the Jewish people into the hands of their enemies, effectively selling them to other nations. And the Torah then continues with the fact that these terrible things have happened, but to Hashem is the vengeance. And Hashem can take revenge upon these enemies. And now we're at sentence 36 in the Parsha that says, when Hashem will judge his nation and have mercy and bring comfort to his servants, when Hashem sees that all else has failed and that the gods that the Jewish people served unfortunately as idols, don't respond to them. I Hashem come and save the day and I Hashem live forever and I, have Hashem, I Hashem have the power and will grasp justice and bring vengeance or recompense against all the enemies and they will basically fall as corpses and bloodied victims and ultimately that Hashem is going to cause rejoicing for his people because he's going to avenge the servants that have been killed, and there will be a reconciliation between Hashem and his people. That's the Shira of Ha'azinu in a nutshell. It's 43 sentences. And the pattern is essentially that <clears throat> the Torah is great, Hashem is great, the Jewish people don't always appreciate that, despite the history of the way Hashem developed the Jewish people and caused them to be built into this incredible nation and that unfortunately, when the people became successful, they ended up rebelling, suffering tremendous devastations until the point that Hashem comes to take vengeance against the enemies and reconcile with his people. This is called a song, by the way. This is the song of the Torah. So right away, we have to understand what makes this something so melodic, and one would have assumed kind of joyful uh, when, as I mentioned earlier, so much of it is bad. So that's an overview question. 
But now let's get a little bit more specific, a little more didactic. There's an incredible shift that happens here in this song. As I described many sentences of devastation, the Torah then somehow shifted. This is really page, um, I'm sorry, chapter 32. And we'll call it sentence 35. The Torah makes a dramatic shift from all the negative things that are happening to the Jewish people to the fact that Hashem will judge his nation and bring comfort to his servants with seemingly no reason for that shift. The Torah doesn't explain what is it that now makes this transformation occur that the Jewish people have been suffering for so long and now Hashem is judging and will bring comfort to his nation and eventually bring tremendous suffering and punishment to all the oppressors. What, what makes that shift happen? And what makes this question more pronounced is actually Rashi's commentary, which uh, appears in sentence 35, when the Torah talks about how Hashem can bring about vengeance. Rashi says like this, that the Torah says that all these negative things happen and then uh, salvation can also quickly come. Rashi says like this, until this point, you will know that Hashem is, you should know that Hashem is rebuking the Jewish people. And when the punishment will come, they will know that I informed them from the beginning that these punishments will happen. And from this point forward, Moshe is testifying about the Jewish people, words of tanchumin, words of comfort, right? words of appeasement that the punishment will end, just like the Torah tells us in Parshas Nitzavim, that when we experience the bracha and the klala, Hashem will return and bring your, your captives back to Eretz Yisrael. That's what Rashi says, that we have all these sentences where there's suffering because of the rebellion of the Jewish people, and the dramatic shift that occurs that Hashem will then punish the enemies and bring comfort to his people is happening just like the Torah says in Parashat Nitzavim that the blessing and the curse will happen to the Jewish people and Hashem will return and take the captives. The problem is, meaning Hashem will return the captivity of the Jews back to Eretz Israel. The problem is that if you look in Parashat Nitzavim, there's one key concept that the Torah mentions over there, but is not mentioned once in the Shira. Anybody want to guess what that key concept is? It's called teshuva, repentance. If you look in chapter 30 in Parshas Nitzavim, the Torah is very clear that when all these things happen to you, the blessing and the curse is chapter 30, sentence one, and you will give to your heart, you will return to your heart, and you will sentence to you, you will return to Hashem and you'll listen to his voice like everything I'm commanding you today. Then Hashem will return your captivity from all corners of the earth and Hashem will gather you and bring you to the land of Hashem and he will circumcise your heart, right? But it says that we're going to repent. But in Parshas Ha'azinu, in this kind of future retrospective where the Torah is telling us about the future and writing it from as though it happened and looking back that Hashem is going to judge his people and bring about comfort to his, his servants and vengeance to the enemies, the Torah never says that's because the Jewish people repented. So my question is, 
Why is it that in Parshas Hazinu the concept of repentance is not mentioned? And here we are on Shabbos Shuva, the Shabbos before Yom Kippur. We're reading Parshas Hazinu, and Parshas Hazinu does not talk about repentance. And yet it still seems like Hashem is ultimately bringing salvation to his people and reconciling with them and giving them cause for rejoicing. Why is the repentance not mentioned? Am, am I um, explaining the question clearly enough? Okay, I'm getting yes, some thank nodding. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Okay. okay, perfect. Good. So I'd like to suggest that this is what I mean by the main thing we need to change is our brain. Is it not true that when most of us think about the state of the world today, we wonder about the following things? I hope the president is going to be a more decent, responsible, good president and custodian of the American people or of the Canadian government or whatever country in which we're living. I, I hope uh, some solutions are going to be found to the financial instability of the world. Hey, what about the spying from foreign countries and the corruption and other governments? Is that not most of what we think about and focus on? Are the Iranians going to get a nuclear power weapon? Are they not? We spend most of our time thinking and worrying about the wrong things. All of this is being orchestrated by Hashem. All of it. Says Rashi, I told you this from the beginning. This is what happens when the Jewish people rebel and they do idolatry and they're satiated and they're fat from their success. What happens? The enemies will take over with the help of Hashem. Is it not that Hashem has sold his people to the enemies, says the Torah in Parshas Hazinu? The answer is yes. Otherwise, it makes no sense that the Jewish people, with all their talents and our abilities, end up in exile for thousands of years. None of this could happen if Hashem is not orchestrating it. The main conversation that we need to be having with each other and ultimately with the world is that this is all part of a plan the end of which is definitely going to be reconciliation between God and the Jewish people and the fact that the people who took advantage of their power opportunities and oppressed other people and did all kinds of horrific, terrible things to human beings will suffer. That's the end of the story. That's what's going to happen. But what do we need to do? Of course we need to repent. But the first thing we need to do is understand that we're focusing on the wrong thing. This is all meant to be. This is the way it's definitely going to happen, says the Torah, because the Jewish people are out to lunch. They're literally not paying attention to the fact that this is the song. The song says, this is the whole story. This is our song. This is the song that hopefully will one day end, that the Jewish people will suffer tremendously at the hands of many nations, and that ultimately Hashem will judge and comfort his servants. Why? Because the Jewish people are going to finally get it through their heads that this history is destined to happen. The only way that we can get to true repentance is if we understand to focus on the messaging 
of Hashem through the history that is unfolding. If we're not going to recognize that everything that's happening is part of what Hashem is intending to happen so that we get the message that he's running the whole show, we're never going to do teshuva properly either. Just to do teshuva so that we, you know, hopefully avoid future punishment is not the name of the game. We have to do teshuva so that we know that Hashem is the one in charge of the entire creation. We cannot worry about nuclear power in Iran and everything else. That is not our job. We have only one job. That is to recognize the truth of Hashem's existence, the fact that the Torah is the tremendous nourishment of the world, and to share the truth of Hashem's existence with each other and the rest of the world, and the destiny of the Jewish people and the world is that ultimately Hashem is our king. That's the main message of the Shira, and that is the reason it is a song. It is a song not only so that we remember it or that it's synopsized, but it's a song because it really tells us that everything that's happening in the world is about us. It's part of the fact that Hashem loves us, that the whole world revolves on the Jewish people as its fulcrum, but not the Jewish people because they know how to you know, destroy nuclear power plants. I don't say that we shouldn't if necessary. Of course, if that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do. But that's not the main message. The main message is to learn that history is unfolding as Hashem is designing it based on the behavior of the Jewish people. Every single country, monarchy, despot that has come into power or to the good or for the bad is because of the behaviors of the Jewish people. That's what it's all about. We are the ones that are the predictive future of events in the world based on who we are becoming and how we are developing. With all of this in mind, I want to add one more idea that comes from the Akeda. It'll take probably the next 10 minutes. And then with this, we're going to conclude. And basically, it's going to be a two-step process. The first thing is we have to understand the truth about the world. If we want to get to Teshuva, we have to have it penetrate our brain. And everything that happens in the world, Hashem is predicting because of the behaviors of the Jewish people. That's the first thing, which should lead us to do Teshuva. But now let's get into a methodology to do a true teshuva. And I want to share it with a little story. Somebody was in my office, one of the yeshiva bachim, and they were asking me, you know, how do I do teshuva, let's say, for example, for the times when I forgot to say a bracha, or when I wasn't having, um, you know, I wasn't paying attention to saying a bracha, or other misdeeds that I may have done, and I forgot how many times I did this and how many times I did that, how do I do teshuva for all those things? What am I supposed to do? Just say, sorry, God, for all those things that I've done and I moved on. So I kind of sarcastically, um, not in words, but in action, took out a notebook. I said, I have a great idea. Take this notebook and keep it with you. It was a you know, pocket-sized notebook. And just this coming year, just write every single thing down. And then next to Yom Kippur, you, know, you won't have that question. And why I say that's sarcastic is because it's completely unrealistic, right? A person is going to be able to write down every single time they did something that they shouldn't have done. Not very likely. 
So I said, okay, so where does that leave us now? If you can't do that and you don't know how to enumerate everything properly, what is a person supposed to do? I think that's a very good question. What, what should a person do? How should a person possibly do teshuva? One of the things that we say in our prayers is that Hashem shows us how to do teshuva. The derech teshuva horesa. And we recall on a constant basis the greatness of our forefathers, Avraham. A major message is the uh, Akeda. Yes, Dr. Horowitz, uh, at least to keep track of major karbonos offerings would be a great idea. Yeah, that would be that would be something, and hopefully it doesn't happen that frequently. But my point is that the Akeda seems to be a very important calling, call, calling to the Jewish people and a frame of reference for what we are as a people and who we are supposed to become. So this is the idea. The opening of the Akeda says, and it was after these things. So the commentaries are bothered by, and Rashi specifically, what does it mean after these things? After what things? Hashem tested Avraham after what things? What are we referencing? So Rashi says two explanations. One is it was after a conversation that the Satan, Satan, had with Hashem. The Satan said to Hashem, after Avraham made a big celebration and party based on Yitzchak's birth, the Satan said to Hashem, you know, Avraham just made this party. He invited all the world leaders, made this big celebration, and he didn't bring you any offerings. He didn't do anything for you. So Hashem says to the Satan, you're right. He didn't bring me any offerings. But if I would ask him to sacrifice his son, who is the cause of all this rejoicing and celebrating, of course, he would offer his son, even kill him if I asked him to do it. So after that, Hashem tested Avraham and asked him to bring Yitzchak. The other opinion says that it was after a conversation between Yitzchak and Yishmael. Yitzchak says, I'm sorry, Yishmael said to Yitzchak, Yitzchak, you're nothing special. I'm really a great man because I did circumcision when I was 13 years old. You were eight days old. What's the big deal? You do circumcision eight days old. It wasn't you doing it. Your parents did it. You're nothing special. I'm a really important special person because I did circumcision at age 13. To which Yitzchak said, you know what? You're right. That is special. But if Hashem would ask me to sacrifice my life, all my body, I would do it. You're great because one limb of your body, you gave some drops of blood, and that is significant. But if Hashem would ask me to give my whole life, I would do that. And after that, after those things, Hashem tested Avraham and asked Yitzchak to be brought as an offering. My question is very simple. How many years before was that conversation before the Akedah? How many years was it from either one of those conversations until the time that Hashem tested Avraham? Well, the answer, according to Rashi and many opinions, is 35 years. 35 years later, after the Satan said, hey, God, Avraham didn't bring you any offerings, and Hashem says, okay, well, I'll ask him to sacrifice his son. Or Yitzchak says to Yishmael, if I, God asked me to sacrifice my life, I would. 35 years later, Hashem asked Yitzchak to sacrifice his life. What took so long? Why are we waiting 35 years? And Really, you're going to say that it was on the heels of that, that this happened 35 years later, nothing happened in between? What, what is it saying? So my suggestion is that what the Torah is telling us is that it takes a long time to build an aspiration into a reality. Sure, Hashem knew that Avraham could become the person to sacrifice the son that he prayed for so long, that Sarah was so attached to, 
that as a couple, they suffered through so much in order to have that son. And they were told that this son is going to be the future of the children of Avraham and to take him and sacrifice him. Yeah, Hashem knew that Avraham would become that person, but it wasn't the next day. For the next 35 years, Avraham Ravinu continued to work on himself and build himself into that kind of servant who could have that kind of commitment and dedication. He had that aspirationally, but he only became it in reality 35 years later. And the same thing with Yitzchak. Of course, he wanted to be the type of person who could sacrifice his, his life if he was called to do so. But at the ripe old age of two or three or however old he was exactly, he wasn't yet that person. It took 35 years for Yitzchak to become that person. So here we have the Torah very clearly saying that the greatest people took time to develop. And the greatest gift that Hashem gives us is time, despite our sins. If you read uh, Aaron Yehuda's missive, it's hard to be optimistic. But at the end of the day, Hashem is giving us time. We only have to do one thing. We have to decide who we want to be in 35 years and start becoming that person. You know, they say 70 is the new 40, right? We can decide now who we can become in 35 years from now. And if we want to do a real teshuva, that's what we'll do. But we won't expect ourselves to be that person this year. This year, we'll take a significant step to becoming that person. And I think that's one of the major reasons that we have to look at the Akedah and always recall the merit of Avraham and Yitzchak and what they did at that time. It was not only about the sacrifice they did, it was about the 35 years that led up to that. That Hashem tested Avraham. They were working on themselves for 35 years to become those people. Now, what a hallmark difference that is, the way a Jew approaches life as a descendant of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and the way the rest of the world approaches life. We understand the value of introspection, self-development, and molding ourselves into higher level beings, even if it takes 35 years. And that is a tremendous lesson of teshuva, because that's the way to really change. You know, unfortunately, many people, their histories, their past, prevent them from who they're going to become. We're supposed to do the opposite. Our past is our past. Now let's think about who we're going to become. We can learn from our past, but it stays in the past because we're focused on our aspirational future. So from the Parsha, we understand that the main thing to look at carefully with our brains is to, is to recognize and understand the history of the world is all about our development as a people. And from the Akedah, we understand that we can become great people. We need to decide that we are, we need to decide who we're becoming, and we need to take steps in that direction and become that. And if we do that, it's true repentance and it's a merit for tremendous atonement and for all the blessings and the hopes that we have for a good year in front of us. If we don't do both these things, then we are resigning ourselves to be part of the negative aspects of history where we have been given so much and we have rebelled, and we have neglected, 
and we have forgotten, and we don't appreciate, and we get given over into the hands of enemies that are given that power by Hashem. But if we do change our brains, and we become aspirational and practical year in and year out, working to that goal, then I think we can get to the sentence, Ki yadin Hashem amo that God will truly change his mind to do good for his people, which is what Yisnacham means over there, and ultimately reconcile with us as a whole people, with Mashiach Tzidkenu Imhera V'yameinu. I'll take questions and comments now. I have a, I have a thought. <clears throat> yes, Dr. Yes, Wallace, Dr. Wallace, please. So in the field of psychology, one of the things that we uh, are focusing over the last decade is neuroplasticity, which is the ability for the brain to change itself. And I've often been curious about the concept of chuva within the context of neuroplasticity, because in many ways, in order to, to do chuva, you have to change. And I think Hashem has given us that gift of changeability, that plasticity means that it can change. Right. Right. You change neural pathways, the, the old neural pathways that dictated old behavior that was not, uh, that didn't work for us, that was uh, inappropriate. You develop new neural pathways that dictate new behavior. But what in context of what you're saying is, is that Rome wasn't built overnight. It takes time for the brain to change. Neuroplasticity isn't like you'd flip a switch. It's something that you do. In our in our world, therapy weekly, working on homework to be able to change patterns, patterning of thought and behavior. But over time, you can change the brain and therefore change how you think and behave. So I'm I hopefully it won't take thirty five years, but it does take time. It does take time, and I think uh, Hashem gave us the gift of changeability, but He also gave us the gift of time that we have uh, a life to keep working on ourselves. 100%. Um, I would actually wonder if there is a difference in this neuroplasticity in studies. I really would wonder if there is a difference between Jews and other people. Hmm. Or at the very least, between people who are embracing very seriously a God concept and people who are not. I do think one of the messages of the Akedah is that Ishmael and Eliezer are not ready for this kind of evolution. They have to stay here. You stay over here. And for sure, the two days Torah reading of Rosh Hashanah is about marking the difference and contrast in Ishmael with Yitzchak. For sure. So at the risk of being uh, sounding ethnocentric, um, I would say that because of the way that we are conditioned early on to learn and to think and to challenge, um, that it's very possible that our brains were conditioned very early on to be more changeable, because we're we're uh, we're really prompted to grow and to learn and to challenge and where's you know the general population. Um, there's basic education, but it's not at the level of what our kids are learning in terms of, you know, challenging. It's, it's, it's not written like the Talmud. No, no, it's not. It, 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 I think it can, it conditions the brain 
to be more more fluid because you gotta you know, when you look at the Gemara, I mean you're looking at different machlokas and different sardim and different you're, all, you're always pivoting. Right. As opposed to standard education where these are the facts, these are the skills and go out and make a living. We're training our brains and our kids' brains to be more fluid. And I think that could lead to neuroplasticity, more neuroplasticity. I don't know. I haven't seen the research, but it's interesting. Okay. Of course, if, if the, you... In the, in the worst case scenario, you're just um, ethnocentric. <laughs> okay. If that's the worst case, then uh, aren't you really ethnocentric? I mean, don't we, you know, we're, we're talking about... Uh, um, yes, he is charged. We're talking yeah. about, you know, the... Uh, the 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 chosen people. I mean, isn't that ethnocentric? It, it is to to an extent, but it's actually more responsibility centric than anything. Did you see what he wrote? Auto ethnophilic. Mr. <laughs> Horowitz just wrote auto ethnophilic, which means that you have a wow. love of your own people. Nice. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, thank you. Okay. Anyway. I'm, I'm done. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, we have Sam and then Rebbe Phil. Thank you very much, Rabbi. I appreciate your... Uh, nice have you back. Thank you. It's great to be back. Appreciate it. <laughs> very concepts to think about this uh, coming uh, Sunday night, Monday day. Uh, you know, you brought the Akedah and, and, and it's always been fascinating to me. And this has nothing to do with Shuva, but has to do with the Akedah since you brought it up. I, I've always been bothered by the fact that uh, during the Akedah, right when Abraham has his, the knife up in his hand and about to strike, a, a, a malach, uh, an angel comes and says, stop. And prior to that, from what I've read, and maybe I'm wrong, God and Abraham had these incredible one-on-one -on -one conversations anytime either one of them wanted it. And yet after the Akedah, according to what I've read in the Chumash, God doesn't speak to Abraham anymore, it's through angels. Would that be something, again, it bothers me, is, is it God now, even though everybody says uh, that Abraham passed the test? Could it be that God may have been, and who am I to say these things, but a bit disappointed that there was no argument from Abraham to God regarding what he was about to do. And that's why God stops talking to him directly and is doing so only through an angel. I don't know so, whether you Yeah, no, so look, those, those are definitely fair points, but the answer is no, it can't be. Uh, so I'll read you a sentence that comes later. Okay, you're, um, in other words, you're right. We don't find that Hashem talks to him directly. But for example, when Hashem talks to Yitzhak directly, Hashem says, live in this land. I'll increase your children. Because Abraham listened to my voice, he kept my guarding, my commandments, my statutes, and my Torahs. But yet, so, so now you have another question. Why doesn't Hashem talk to him? Right. Why, why he stops talking to him okay, from good. the now on? Good, good. That's an, all I'm saying is that it, I don't think that the answer can be that he's upset with him. That's all I'm saying from this sentence. So now we need to have another answer. Right, but it's uh, would, would that be different? And I'm sorry, taking too much time, but that would be different from a father who is disappointed in his son, but continues to talk to the 
uh, grandson and saying, I love you because your father was a very good person, even though he disappointed me a little bit in whatever. But overall, he was really a good son to me. Right. You know, I, I mean, I just brought you one sentence. How, how many sentences in the Torah talk about I'm going to remember the covenant that I made with Abraham? You know what I'm saying? So yep. and and the fact that we say the God of Abraham all over the place. So I'm just saying we need a different answer, in my opinion, based on so many other points of reference. Thank you. OK. Awesome. Maybe Yeah, but you did give a <laughs> Phenomenal answer. Why? That's yeah. I mean, you already gave another one. Sheer. You want to? You don't want to? You don't want to tell them what it was. Another shear. The first thing is we have to we have to answer the question. Is it? No, no, I know. We, but yeah, yeah. But yeah, but you have to tell them also that you gave an entire shear explaining why it was a malach and not a shem. Yeah, but he's not <laughs> only asking about the malach. He's asking about why later uh, Hashem doesn't speak to Avraham that we see. He's asking that question. At that, at that point? No, why is from it, why that is point forward. Why is it necessary? Yeah, okay, okay, okay. That's another question. I'm, I'm just saying that's also his question. Again, he's making an assumption. Who says the assumption yeah, is Okay. True? That's what we talked about. Okay. okay. Sure, <laughs> no, what I wanted to ask about, interesting, based on what you're saying, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious, but I'm just saying, let's say we have this person that is embarrassed of his past, the Jewish person embarrassed of his past, that he was a Baal Tshuva, and he covers covers it up. Besides the fact that that's probably not healthy, it, according to how you're explaining it, that's literally going to prevent him from really growing. Yes. I think that's true. Isn't it? That, isn't that true? No, I'm asking. I, I don't really know it to be true, but I would have to assume that if you don't understand that everything's a development and you have to uh, continue growing. The fact that you covering up and literally lying about your past because you're so embarrassed about it, uh, how could you possibly grow? I mean, based, especially based on what you're saying is you're taking the sins you did and, you're, uh, and, and recognizing them and understanding that it's all a process. Yeah. So if you're not doing sure. that, then you're lacking in your whole sense of tshuva or you're literally taking away your ability to do do <laughs> Yes, agreed. That's why we have to be really misvada. We have to really do. Uh, we have to own up. Otherwise, we can't get anywhere. That's true. Hundred percent true. Sharkochacha. Um, before I get to Aaron Yehuda, I want to know. Uh, okay, so Dr. Finkelstein, if you could, I'm, I'm just curious. I was going to call you earlier today. If you could think about what would be some talking points to share with our fellow Jews of all types and to the non-Jews of the world regarding the way to express the history of the world, where it's been and where it's headed, given the context of Hazinu that we've related. Because I would love to come up with a one-pager of talking points. So I think that that's part of what the Parsha is telling us. Primarily, we have to look at the history, understand the events. It is a predicted a prediction about the future that has unfolded and continues to unfold. And if we don't see that pattern, then we're not going to get to the sec the end part of the parsha, which is where Hashem is, you know, ultimately reconciling with us. So if you could just think about that temporarily and then we'll simple, we'll ask simple you, task, then, no problem. Okay, well I didn't get a chance to call you earlier today. So you have a couple minutes because Iron Yehuda is gonna go and uh, maybe somebody else. So please. Yes. Aaron Yehuda. 
It's, uh, it's a, of course, another great idea. On, on the topic of neuroplasticity and, and Hazinu, and there are people in this chat who are more uh, professionally qualified to discuss it, but neuroplasticity is, a, is really a two-edged sword. And I see how it ties into Hazinu because people, it, it can be a device that, that heals and, and uh, corrects an issue over time. And it can also something that erode, that can erode practice. And, and, and people doing the right thing. So I think that flexibility is a two-edged sword and, and it really comes to the, the, the question of the choices that we have to make because we can, we, we can improve and we can, we, we can uh, devolve, uh, so to speak. Uh, and, and, and as to how it happens, I, I, I think when the question was asked, what is it about the Jewish people that makes us special? I would hazard a couple of guesses. Number one, I think if, if somebody is not just Jewish, I don't know if there's a genetic or some kind of a Jungian super consciousness that we have, but certainly uh, the element of faith is very big because we know that people can change more if they believe that there is some kind of transcendent thing that can help them to change beyond their own limitations. And this is very big in the treatment of addiction and in 12-step programs where people, regardless of a particular belief, resort to a higher power to, to, to fortify themselves to make a change that they can't do if they rely strictly on their own uh, resources. On, on the other hand, so besides this transcendent element, there's also the real element of people having a disciplinary routine to change, which is why I think that the Jewish lifestyle of, of davening regularly, of, 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 of uh, confessing, of, of, of uh, doing a heshbon hanefesh, uh, et cetera, et cetera, is the complement to that. So we have the transcendent side and we have the lifestyle element. And I think that together, they do give us the opportunity to, to, to change ourselves uh, for the better with God's help. Yes, the, the, those are excellent points. And some of it is echoing a little bit of what you wrote. Uh, part of that lifestyle is, you know, living in a community with caring for each other serving Hashem together um, and how that can really help a person change well and long-term change also. Yep, I appreciate it very much. I just want to make one comment. I just realized yes. from yes, what he's, the doctor is saying about neuroplasticity, isn't that a complete repudiation of Freudian psychology where you don't have freedom of choice? It's a very it's a very interesting uh, point. Um, I think to some degree the whole idea of your future reality is fixed because of what happened as a child is diametrically opposite the concept of neuroplasticity. That's what I'm Yeah, no, I'm 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 acknowledging it because otherwise, what are we doing as a psychologist? My job is to help people change and to transform into different people, or and. Uh, I don't believe that we are destined based on our our uh, childhood. I mean, obviously we're affected by our childhood, but the goal is to, if the goal is to transform, there has to be some kind of supposition of neuroplasticity that we can change our brains. And uh, I think that that's why a lot of uh, what Freud wrote was really apicorsis. Well, that yeah. goes without saying. <laughs> <laughs> When I was doing my PhD, I had to go to uh, uh, my Russian Shiva, Weinberg, constantly about like what's fracromed, what's 
what's not what you know because it's it was so confusing that's why we we kind of debunked all it's all debunked and we're just focusing on change not only was he apicaros what's interesting about freud is the complex he had with our torah he wrote two books on moses and was and you know one of them in one of them he it's amazing like you know talk about a guy who's to show you how his own brain works he says that you know the big reveal was that Moses was secretly a Gentile. That's what he he, he says. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, an, Egyptian, mean, so, an Egyptian prince. Yeah, so I mean, so the the point is that like that's that's him secretly wishing, of course, that his secular thinking would be embraced and his true Jewish identity would be revealed. <laughs> you know, what could be clearer? You know, what could be clearer? And so, but the um. I think what's interesting about Hazinu is that, like, we're, I mean, we keep talking about neuroplasticity, but I think in some sense what we're really talking about is the capacity to make new choices and grow. And in, in the least romantic way of summarizing Hazinu is that, like, as a nation, we're pretty much the only people that can really do that and everyone else is trapped. And so it's kind of on us. And, like, that's, like, the kind of, like, not romantic way of, of looking at things. And, and th- we've fallen into a trap of choice. Just like it makes no sense. We fall into a trap. We fall into a state where, like, we are capable. The Jewish people, the Jewish nation, is capable of making a set of choices that ultimately are going to be catal- catalytic for a, a universal pro- pro- uh, program of, of global transformation. And we have a certain job that we've fallen into to do, and it's uniquely our choice to do that. Here's how history is going to play out. This is where the program leads to, and this is your job in that program. And it really is up to you. So to some extent, that's why the chosen people thing makes so much sense, because, you know, it's like that's the the feature of that. It it assumes learning. That whole process assumes the capacity for learning and it predicts what will be learned through the process. It says, here's here's who you're here's who you're going to become in 35 years on Yisrael. (laughs) Here's who you're going to end up being over time. Or 3,500. Or 30, as the case may be. (laughs) Yeah, right. So, you know, I think that's the the kind of like, you know, it, it's it, it, in some ways it's like it's the, the chapter should start off by saying, hey, spoiler alert, you know, <laughs> right. this, is, this is where this is headed. Um, but which but, doesn't mean. So anyway, that's those are a few of my thoughts. No, that's great. But do you think like like we could come up with like a, a short list of talking points of yeah, understanding I do, the I do, history? I do. I do, because I think basically the Jewish process is the global process. We're a microcosm of the global process. There's a set of realizations that are packed in the Hazinu that that will that are basically determinative in the thought processes of the history of the globe. So, what are those realizations that we need to come to? What do we need to undo to come to those realizations? Well, a big part of that, as we were talking about, is the realization that like race, I'm not so sure about, but family, I am, and like you know the the the, the centrality of family that's very Abrahamic, right? And the importance of, of recognizing the singular the singular importance of the divine. Right. And how that is really the way that so what, what Abraham is showing us is, is a process of infinite, not just growth, but infinite, it's important to, 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 to see the process. It's a process of confederation. I, as an individual, can align with God. That aligns my family with God. My family can align with other families through God. Our families together can form a tribe that's aligned with God. That tribe can form with other tribes to make a nation that's aligned with God. That nation can form with other nations to make a globe that's aligned with God. So the whole idea is that you have hierarchical levels of confederation. And really, like that, that's why this Abraham Tent thing is such a smart idea, because that's exactly what this is. It's it's yeah. a confederacy, it's a confederacy that we are exemplars for. And just like Joseph, 
just like Joseph. Remember, the whole family isn't going to get there before one individual does. Yeah. One individual will always outpace the rest of the family to, to kind of yeah. lead the way. And so that's why that's why the 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 mushal with Joseph with Yosef is that is that essentially at like the our our kates are like our end times is going to parallel that the nations are going to look at at Israel as, as their Yosef and say whoa you guys were ahead of the curve wow wow you really saw this coming didn't you right yes and, yes and and there's a big reveal but just like that there's a big reveal. So, like, I think we've 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 acted this out through mimesis. Like, we've kind of like without a Torah, we acted it out as a proto a, a, a protological step. And now, now that we've gone past proto language, we have explicit language and law and all the rest of it. We can take the confederation into something that's more are better articulated, rational. So, I guess I'm working through what you've asked me to do. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Uh, the the way that it's working and should work. I want to finish with one idea that's really been striking me this last couple of weeks, and we'll just conclude with this, and hopefully everybody will take it into their davening on Yom Kippur. There are a few places in davening on a regular basis, and now that we, it's the 10 days of repentance, where when we pray, we're not only praying for the collective Jewish people, we are praying for us and the collective Jewish people. Example, in Sefer Chaim Bracha V'Shalom Afanas HaTov V'Nizacher V'Nipaseh L'Tanach Anachnu and all your nation, the Jewish people. So there's an incredible breakdown and it's going exactly to what you spoke about, uh, Dr. Finkelstein. We have to acknowledge that the people that are in our circle is a separate group within the larger group. We have to be feeling connected to them, to that ecosystem that is us, and then the larger group. It's in every Kaddish, by the way. That God's name should be great in your lifetimes. And all the Jewish people. And then at the end, in Oseh Shalom Bim Romav, God does the harmony in heaven to Yaseh Shalom Aleinu on us. I'll call Yisrael. Incredibly important is recognizing our village, that first confederacy level, which includes hopefully our family. It doesn't only mean the people in Shul, I think it means the people who are in our purview on a constant basis as our ecosystem. To me, that is a huge component of what we need to be praying for. And it is specifically talking about building these concentric circles that I think Dr. Finkelstein is describing. To me, it's very inspiring. And I just want to conclude with saying this group is definitely a, a hugely important circle for me and has been a tremendous blessing. Uh, all the incredible people that I've met that I knew before, but also that I've met through this process and relationships that are building with each other and the synergy that's developing. That's an example of this slowly building confederacy, to use Dr. Finkelstein's word, to a greater alignment with appreciation for Hashem. We pray for that. Um, before we go, I'm going to put up the, the donation link for Talmudic oh, Academy. Okay. Yep. Okay. I'm going to put it here awesome. on the for everyone here. And I remember, DACA also averts the Abraham Clinton. It's a good time. <laughs> You're right. 100% right. <laughs> Thank you, Rabbi, for everything. Thank you, everyone. Tamara Hasimatova to all. Absolutely a joy. Bye, guys. Thank you, Rabbi. Bye, everyone. Thank you, Rabbi.
You'll call up uh, Akiva? Yes. Okay.